Good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to be in church this morning. We will get back to worship, and we're also going to um, celebrate communion together a little later in the service. In the last number of weeks, as we've been considering our theme of Be Ready, we've spent a lot of time in John chapter 15, 16, sorry, not 15, uh, 15, 16, and 17. And it's so, as I was preparing, I was so struck that that's just part of a discussion, part of a discourse that Jesus had on the night that he was betrayed, the night before he went to the cross. It must have been quite a night. They celebrated the Last Supper, what we call the Last Supper, our basis for communion, and he spoke to them a whole lot about preparing them for what was to come, preparing them for the fact that he was going to leave. And as we've considered in the last seven weeks, and we've looked at these scriptures, if I may remind you, we've spoken about being ready for God's glory, to be ready to experience more of God, not only in church, but in our homes and in our workplaces, that as we take God with us, as it were, into those spaces, that we would see more of the glory of God, the person of who he is, expressed in our spaces of interaction. We've spoken about being ready for more fruitfulness, that God will prepare us to, for a greater effectivity in our world. We've both spoken about being ready to remain. How important is it if storms come, if it goes well in life, that we remember to remain in Jesus, to stay in fellowship with him. We've also spoken about being ready for opposition. And it doesn't seem to be a contradiction as we follow Jesus that while we're remaining in him and experiencing more fruitfulness, and we spoke about being ready for more of the Spirit as well, there's also an opposition that comes and that we learn to hold these things together in life. We also spoke about being ready for more joy, that while we are in opposition, there is real joy that we experience in our relationship with God. You may remember that we were ready for more of the Spirit and we spent some time praying for one another and anointing each other with oil as a symbol that we're ready for more of the Spirit of God to be evidenced in our life. Last week, Pastor Louis spoke to us about being ready to be sent, to take this joyous message we have and share it in our places outside the church where we go and we interact, because Jesus did say, go into all the world. And so we are ready to be sent. Today, we're going to talk about ready for unity, ready for unity, and we're going to spend some time at the last few verses in John chapter 17. So if you can, in your Bibles or devices, turn to John 17, the Scriptures will come up on the screen as well, if you want to follow there. John 17 is kind of a culmination of this discussion that Jesus is having with his disciples, where he's been preparing them for the fact that he's going to leave and telling them to be ready for change as well. And in chapter 17, Jesus prays this phenomenal prayer, where he prays for his disciples. It's so interesting for me that he knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He has to gear himself up for, for that ordeal. And yet, his priority is to pray for the disciples. And so we looked at some of that passage last week. We're going to look from verse 20 today, John chapter 17. And we're going to read the last seven verses from verse 20 to verse 26. Jesus is praying and he says in verse 20, My prayer is not for them alone, speaking of the disciples that are there with him, probably on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. So my prayer is not just for the twelve or however many were there with him. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, 
Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, Jesus goes on. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have, uh, sorry, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I don't want those you have given me, uh, sorry, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they, the disciples, know that you have sent me. I have made, no, I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Phenomenal words that Jesus prays. It's comforting to note that Jesus prays for us. He prays to the Father. Throughout this prayer, he's praying to the Father. But he prays to the Father for us. His mind is not just the people who are with him. He has the foresight to know that the message that his disciples in that garden would take, they would take into all the world, and thousands of years later, we would be sitting here today. So this is very much this part of the prayer, the whole prayer actually, is a prayer that Jesus prays with us in mind and for us. We are really the fruit of the disciples' ministry, the fruit of the message that Jesus gave to his disciples to carry on into the world. It is important to note that Jesus prays for those who will still believe. Believing is important. We must believe to qualify to be included in this prayer. And so isn't it good to know that on the night Jesus was betrayed, on his last night before he suffers, he had you and me in mind. He prayed for us. If you understand the book of Hebrews well, in chapter 7, verse 25, it says that he continues to pray for us as well. So how's that? Jesus is praying for you. Isn't that good to know? And I'm sure the Father listens to his son's prayers. So that's very good news. Jesus is praying for us. As I studied this passage, I noticed that there were five re repeating ideas, five recurring themes. Because initially, if you read it, it's a little bit, uh, I found it, maybe I'm just dense, but I found the words a little intermingled, you know, I and them and you and me and they and us and then this. And, uh, you know, I had to focus a little bit to, to unpack it a, a bit. And so I trust it will be able to look at that this morning. So there's five key concepts or five repeated ideas that come through in this passage. They are this idea of being one, that this Jesus repeatedly talks about being one. This idea of indwelling, that we are in, the, in, the, in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father and Jesus is in us. This idea of indwelling. Jesus speaks about glory as well. He also talks about love and then he talks about twice about purpose, actually possibly three times. There's this idea of purpose, why he does this and why he specifically prays it. So we want to look this morning just quite quickly at this idea of being one, indwelling, glory, love, and purpose. Now, if I may take a little bit of license, I'm going to do it in semi-reverse order. I'm going to talk about love first and then work my way back to purpose from there. And so the first 
idea that repeats in this passage is this idea of love. You'll see in verse 23, verse 24, and verse 25, Jesus speaks, and he says that the Father has loved us, the disciples, even as he loved Jesus, as he loved the Son. So God loves us as much as he loved Jesus. That's very good news. It says also that he was loved before the creation of the world. So this love is not bound in time. This love is not bound by this state of existence. This love is an eternal love. And then importantly, Jesus prays that this, that love that he and the Father have for us would be in us and then by implication be expressed through our lives. And so we are well loved. We are loved by God as much as he loves the Son. We are very well loved. And it's a love that is eternal. It's a love that does not change and is not dependent upon what's going on around us. And Jesus prays that we would know this love, that we live this life that is characterized by love. We live in the kingdom of love. The key distinctive that makes Christianity different is that we live governed by the fact that we are loved and that we should love others. This is a love that, is prefers, that prefers the other. So just as Jesus is modeling here, he's got enough to keep his mind full. He's got enough that he has to face in the next couple of hours, but he prefers us and he spends time praying for us. And so perhaps a little way to think of it is this, is that God is love and we should be too. The same love that God has is in us. So God is love and we should be too. Another repeating idea that comes up in this passage is this idea of glory. Jesus says in verse 22 that, the Father, that he gives us the glory that the Father has given him. He bestows glory, as some of the older translations would say. Also in verse 24, he says that he wants us to see his glory in all its fullness. Because even while he's on earth, in John chapter 1, John writes and he says, We saw the life of Jesus and we beheld him. And we saw his glory. We saw something of the essence of God, something of who God was. We see in the life of Jesus. But Jesus says there's more. One day, we can use the language in heaven, one day when we live with him in eternity, there's, then we will see glory in its full extent. But it is interesting that God bestows glory on the Father. Glory is given, sorry, God bestows glory on the Father. The Father bestows glory on Jesus is what I meant to say. The Father bestows glory on Jesus, and then Jesus gives us this glory as well. It is important, as we understand this glory, that we look at the life of Jesus. Jesus takes this glory that the Father gives him, the essence of God, the power of God that's on his life, and he doesn't use it to elevate himself, he uses it to serve. He takes this glory and he goes to the cross. He takes this glory and he pays the price for our sin. He chooses the way of humble service. He chooses the cross. And so when we get given glory by Jesus, as Jesus prays, I, I've given them glory. We carry something of the nature and the essence of God. We live out Jesus and God in our lives. We try and portray who he is. But as we do that, it's not to elevate us. It's not to make us better. It's also so that we can follow in the footsteps of our master, that we can choose the path of humble service. So glory is not intended to elevate, it's intended to humble. It's intended to us to make us grateful because, you see, we know we don't deserve it. 
It's not of us, it's of him. And so Jesus says in this passage that he's given us some glory. The small, the small band of disciples that's there in the garden with him takes this glory and this message that Jesus really came and he paid for our sins and they take it into all the world and they change everything. But it's important to remember that the glory is not of us. Glory always belongs to God. Glory is his, not ours. Glory belongs to God. So God is love and we should be too. Glory belongs to God. The third main idea that Jesus speaks about here is this idea of indwelling. In verse 21, he says that um, just as you are in me, in the Father and the Son, I am in you. There's this mutuality in their relationship. May the believers, the disciples, may we, sitting here today, also be in Christ. Verse 23 says, I will be in the believers and you will be in me. Verse 26, I will be in them, that I myself will be in them. This speaks of the indwelling presence of Christ in our life. Now, this is a bit mysterious for me. I don't know exactly how this works, this idea of how does God live in us? How does he presence his life in us? But I know this, when I got born again, when I gave my life to God and committed to live for him when I was 15 years old, something changed in me. And it was not of myself, it was of him. And I know that when the Spirit of God came and lived in me and empowered my life, something changed. And I had a relationship with God, an intimacy that I could not have had before that, before I was saved. And so there's this reality which we perhaps can't scientifically explain, but that there's the presence of God in us. Jesus said he will be in us and we will be in him. We have to be in Christ. And it's this idea that as we're in Christ, that we get to know God better and we are able to love one another better. So very importantly, we must be in Christ. The purpose of the indwelling is that we remain in Christ, as Jesus spoke of earlier in chapters in the Gospel of John. Not only must we be in Christ for the purpose of salvation, we must be in Christ in the sense of remaining and abiding in him. Jesus said, if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. So it's not just about salvation that we come into Christ. It's about an ongoing, fruitful relationship. And so as we abide in him, as we remain in him, our journey with God grows closer. And so love is important. We've been bestowed with glory. And he lives in us, and we live in him as well. But if we read the text, it's very clear. There's an aim to this, that he has loved us, that he has given us glory, that we remain in him, we indwell, we are indwelt by Christ and we, we stay in him. Jesus prays specifically and says, I pray that they may be one. And so I just want to talk a little bit about this idea of being one. Verse 21, Jesus specifically prays, he says, I pray that all of them may be one. That they may be one as we are one. So as the Father and the Son have a unity, Jesus prays that there may be a similar unity reflected in his body. Now, I don't think we can become the Trinity. No matter how much I like Sean, he and I are never going to be like the Father and the Son because they're God, they're one being. But their unity in the Trinity provides a foundation that we can be in good relationship with one another, that we can have a sense of being together, united not only in spirit but also in purpose. 
Jesus prays in verse 23, he says that they may be brought into complete unity. We're loved, we're bestowed glory, and we have Christ living in us so that we can be one. As we are one, Jesus says. This is a unity, a oneness, in which we don't lose our identity. This is very important, I think, to note. Just as the Father and the Son stay distinct, yet they are one, so when we are one in Christ, we come from our backgrounds. We come from every tribe, people, nation, and tongue, tongue, the Bible says. Yet, when we come into Christ, there's a unity, a oneness that is built. Now, people will tell us that if you want to bring people into unity, you need a shared vision. If you have a shared vision or a common purpose, people will come together. They will tell us that when you share experiences, often particularly if you suffer together, there's a unity or a, a oneness that comes. Or if you celebrate together, like if your favorite sports team wins, suddenly you just feel much closer to the guy next to you or the lady next to you. Sometimes shared experiences bring unity. Or if you join a group or a church, there's a, that can produce unity as well. But what Jesus is praying here is that the basis of our unity is that we are in Christ. The true basis of Christian unity, we have shared vision. Here at Hatfield, our vision is God's kingdom in hearts, homes, and beyond. That is our purpose. We have shared experiences. We worship together and we experience the presence of God together. We're going to go through storms together, apparently, too. And good times together as well. But a basis of our unity is that we are one. We are in Christ. We share in the body of Christ. Paul uses different metaphors for this in the New Testament. He speaks in Ephesians of us being part of the household of God, the family of God. That, and you remember Pastor Louis preached on that, that there's place at the table for everybody, as long as we are in Christ. Paul uses also the metaphor of temple that we're all built into, as living, uh, built into the temple of God. Peter speaks about us being living stones built into the temple of God, or a body, as been referred and spoke to earlier, that we're all part of a body. These metaphors of, of family and being part of the household of God and temple and body, the Apostle Peter talks about us being a holy nation and a royal priesthood. These are all ways that the biblical authors are trying to help us understand what it means to be one in Christ. These pictures to help us that we are different, yet we have one common thing, and that is we are in Christ Jesus. And so we have this spiritual unity accomplished for us because we are in Jesus Christ. But it's a unity that needs to express itself in love. It's not a unity for the sake of unity. It's a unity that expresses itself in love. It's a unity that because we are in Christ together, we can love one another. It's a unity that says because we are in Christ together, we can worship together. It's a unity that says, because we're in Christ together, we can serve a broken world. We can serve our community. We can serve our city. And so we come here to the purpose. Why did Jesus want us to be one? Just so that we can be comfortable in church or that we can enjoy looking deeply into each other's eyes. It's my wife, don't worry. Okay. Why this? And it's interesting in this prayer that Jesus is very, very clear. He says there's a purpose to our unity. Verse 21, the purpose for the, is that the world may know. Verse 21 says, they may be one so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23, bring them into, uh, make them one so that the world will know that you sent me. And verse 25 says, the world doesn't know you, 
but I know you, and the idea is that the world must get to know God. And so the purpose of our unity, the purpose of our oneness in Christ, is actually not about us, it's about the world. It's about the fact that the world must know that Jesus has come. The world must know that there is a saviour who will take away their sins. The world must know that there's a redeemer who will reconcile all things to himself. And the only way the world will know this is through the church. Now, not just the church Hatfield, the church universal, the church through all ages and times. The world will know when we are together. I was chatting with someone a number of months ago and they, they heard about what happens here at Hatfield, what's normal for us, that people from many nations come together, many tribes and many creeds and even men and women together, imagine that, in one church space. And they said, well, God has done a miracle here because this is not normal. This is not what you encounter in most spaces. If we listen to the, the politics of identity, it's telling us we are different, we are different. But Jesus says, no, you're not. You're one because you're in Christ. Amen. Earlier on in this prayer, Jesus prays. What must the world know? The world must know what eternal life is. The world must know that Jesus has come. John 17, verse 3, from earlier in the prayer, Jesus says, now this is eternal life. This is what heaven is about. This is what eternity is about. That they know you, the one, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. The world must know God. And the only way the world will get to know God is through you and through me. If I can invite the, the worship team to join me on, on stage so long. We're going to pause the sermon now. I'm going to finish in a bit later. But we have an opportunity today where we can partake in communion together. Because communion is this meal that unites us. It's a, it's a symbol also of our unity. And I'd like to perhaps read through a scripture and then after communion, come and talk about a little bit about some applications around what this oneness can mean for us. And so as we move to a time of communion, I'd like to read a scripture that Paul recorded for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It won't come up on the screens. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 27, where as the community in Corinth gathers, like we are going to gather now around the Lord's table, as they gather to celebrate and to remember what God has done. Paul writes these words for us. He says, For what I received from the Lord, so just like Jesus did it, I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. He had real bread. And he broke it. And when he had given thanks... On the night he's going to be betrayed, he's great when he says, thank you for your grace in my life, God. He gives thanks. He broke it and he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we partake in communion and we eat these elements because we remember what Jesus has done for us. The text is clear. We remember what God has done. We remember 
that He has made us one. We remember that we are in Christ because of what He has done, not of ourselves, not because we're smart or clever or said the right prayer, but because of what He has done. And so we're going to take some time now, we're going to worship while we're having communion, and we're going to move to different communion points. Please note also that Jesus says, you proclaim the Lord's, Paul writes, and he says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this morning as we celebrate communion, people from everywhere in every space and place, we come and we say, we proclaim that Jesus has made us one, and we are in Christ together. Our communion tables are open to all. You don't have to be a member of this church. You do need to believe in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, you can. Remember what he has done, that he's paid a price for your sin. And we'll be happy to pray with you to that end as well. Just practically, we want to ask that this is regarded as a, with reverence, as a holy moment, because we are remembering what Jesus has done. There's different communion stations. Uh, I think some pictures might come up on the screens. If you're seated, seated in the front half of the auditorium, please come to the front. If we may ask that you take the elements as you need and then just step a little bit away from the table and have communion with friends or family. Please bring your belongings with you as well just for, for safety reasons. If you're in the back half of the auditorium, we'll uh, open the doors there for you and we'll celebrate communion in the foyer. And please, this is not a time to leave. We, we, uh, we still want to finish the sermon and, and do some application in that space. And um, your children will only be released from the children's church after 11 anyway. If you're up in the gallery, pretty much this part of the gallery, up in the Kopenong Hall there in the corner, there's a communion station. And if you're on this part of the gallery, there's a table up in that side there. And so let's worship together as our worship team serves us by playing um, music for us and singing songs. Let's come to the table to celebrate our oneness, to remember what Christ has done, but to celebrate that we are one in Christ. We'll allow that the tables to be open for maybe about 10 minutes, and then we'll do the uh, end the service by uh, the conclusion of the, the message. Thank you. And so Jesus prayed that we would be one. On the night before his betrayed, significant moment of everything he could have prayed, he prayed that we would be one. He's loved us well so that we can love others. He's given us glory so that we can carry his nature, his, his uh, character, and represent him well in the world. He comes and lives in us so that we can be in relationship with the Father and empowers us to live through the Spirit a life for him so that the world may know. But Jesus prayed this prayer, but if we want to be one, I believe there's just three things we need to be mindful of this morning as just an application of this message. If we want to be one, we always need to remember that it's His glory and not ours. We do not live for ourselves, we live for Him. We must remember that glory does not elevate us. Whatever good God has done in our lives is not to elevate us, it's to humble us because we don't deserve it. It's not of us, and it's not because of us, it's because of Him. So it's His glory and not ours. We need to be mindful and careful of pride, that pride doesn't enter our hearts. Uh, Artie Kendall 
uh, has written a book about pride and he defines pride as this way. He says, pride is when we take ourselves too seriously. When everything becomes about us, we develop an unhealthy obsession with ourselves. When we come to church and it's primarily about us and when we interact with our families in our family spaces and it's all about us. And when we go to work, it's all about us. We're taking ourselves too seriously. We don't serve Jesus to benefit ourselves. We serve Jesus because we're saved to benefit the world. And so we follow the way of our master and we take the way of humble service, the way of sacrificial living. We choose, therefore, humility. If we want to be one, we need to be people that are humble. And if we want to be one, lastly, we need to be a community of love. We need to be a community characterized by love. The love of God is in us by the Holy Spirit. And that gives me the ability to prefer the other. Not the love like we have warm feelings for one another. That's not a biblical understanding of this love. This is a love that says, I live for your good. I prefer the other. When I'm in the community with unbelievers and unsaved people, I prefer the other. And so we, because the love of God is in us and because we have been loved well, we ought to love one another well. And so this morning, Jesus prayed for us and he is still praying for us, continually praying for us. That is our comfort, that no matter how well it's going or how tough things are or where we are in our life, Jesus prayed for us. The challenge for us this morning is that the world must know. And the only way the world will know is if we love them well. And if we can be in Christ together, be united in purpose and love well. It's interesting for me in John 14, 13, Jesus speaks uh, just before he knows that the devil's going to come against him. It's part of this anticipating the cross. And he says, the world must learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. And maybe that needs to be true of us as a community, that the world must learn that we love our Father and that we'll do what He's commanded us to do. Not in arrogance, but in humility. Not with a pointing finger, but with inviting arms that love. Not with the I know better, but with humility. And so, as we close and we if we can do one more song at the end and we can worship together. I'd like to read the passage of Scripture again, John chapter 17, from verse 22 to 26. Jesus praying, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Isn't that hope that one day we will be with Jesus where he is and we will then really see glory in all its fullness and in all its wonder?
Righteous Father, Jesus prays, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you sent me. I've made, no, I've made you known to them and, and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I may, myself may be in them. No matter where you are, no matter where you go, no matter what you're going through, if you are a believer, Jesus is with you and he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Can I invite you to stand? We'll pray and then worship together and end the service. Thank you, Father, that you love us the same as you love Jesus. That you've made a way for us to stand in unity together. That we can be one. And thank you most of all, Jesus, that you live in us. That we are never alone. And that you will never forsake us. And I pray, Lord, that we would be this community that loves one another well. I pray that we would be a community that loves our families well. I pray that we would be a community that loves our city well so that the world might know that the Savior came and that there is a way to walk away from sin and there's a way to be reconciled to you. We pray this this morning. I bless each one that's attended and the children and in all the services this day. May you be with us and may we be conscious of your presence with us in this week ahead. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.